Well, thank you, Trevor. That was a brilliant, I can't even see where he is, a brilliant uh, introduction to my talk. It's great. So today I'm carrying on um, the theme that we camped around um, living in purpose. And last week, Jen, that was really fantastic, told us, uh, pointed out that obedience is one of the components of living in purpose. And she was obedient to the Holy Spirit saying to her, go and pop to the neighbour, and so she made her muffins, and that opened a door into being invited into that lady's distress, really, a really distressed life, and the journey keeps on going. Her challenge to us was a very practical one. Who's in your life now, and what are you going to do about it? I'd like to bring something practical too. I'm a deeply practical person. I'm an occupational therapist. It's built around the thought that when you find your people, you will find your purpose. And secondly, your people are closer than you think. Who loves Pavlova? Yeah? Yeah, I do. Um, uh, I associate it with that light, fluffy dessert that's kind of summery and strawberries and kiwi fruit on top <laughs> with some grated dark chocolate. Got to get in the picture? Yep. Um, I, I, I associate it with uh, family occasions, Christmas and sort of big kind of occasions. My mother was an excellent pavlova maker, and I remember many times I'd come out from the kitchen in the morning, and there would be in the oven her pavlovas that were left there from the night before, because that was her secret, that if you kept them in the oven overnight, they would always turn out. So then she would peel back the paper off them and then store them away for whatever event it was. Well, I got married, and I thought that being a good wife was about, well, one of the things was if I could pull off a great pavlova, I'd made it. And uh, I tried. Man, did I try. And Bruce, such a good young husband, he ate them all. But they weren't good. They weren't good. They were chewy and thin, and they had that gooey kind of stuff that comes out the bottom. I don't know if it's sugar or what it is. Um, yeah, they were just... So I actually flipped into um, cheesecakes. <laughs> I found that they worked for me. So... Um, i just like to suggest that I had a wrong idea of what being a good wife might be. And um, I didn't have to make pavlovas. Um, cheesecakes were just fine. And I'd like to suggest to you that this just a throwaway kind of story, but that maybe we've got a mistaken idea of what living in purpose actually means. Um, maybe we've decided it looks like this, and actually... It looks like that. Um, and I'd like to show you that living in purpose, I think, is just natural, natural to you. Your people and your purpose are much closer than you might think. Let's go to the Bible. So my story is from Acts. The church um, had been born. It was vibrant. There were people being added to the church every day. The Holy Spirit had been poured out. Um, and there was a bit of a problem. Um, the widows and the poor people um, weren't getting as much attention. The apostles felt that they couldn't teach and do everything as well as organize the poor and uh, stuff for the poor and the widows. So they appointed some deacons. And um, two, two of those deacons were Stephen and Philip. Now, Stephen, as we come to our story, has just been martyred. 
And our central character is Philip. Um, it's set amongst the backdrop of great persecution where um, Saul of Tarsus is viciously trying to destroy the church and the believers are leaving um, and, and, and as a result are spreading the gospel all around the known world at that time. And Philip has, uh, by the time we get to our story, has established himself, for this point in time anyway, in Samaria. And he's now called, not just a deacon, but Philip the Evangelist. And um, in some of the translations I read, uh, this story is called The Vanishing Hitchhiker, which I thought was quite exciting. Uh, so, reading from um, Acts eight twenty six. Later, God's angel spoke to Philip. At noon today, I want you to walk over to that desolate road that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza. He got up and went. He met an Ethiopian eunuch coming down the road. The eunuch had been on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and was returning to Ethiopia, where he was the minister in charge of all the finances of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He was riding in a chariot and reading the prophet Isaiah. The spirit told Philip, climb into the chariot. Running alongside, Philip heard the eunuch reading Isaiah and asked, this is a nice empowering question for you David Riddell fans, do you understand what you are reading? He answered, how can I without some help? And he invited Philip into the chariot with him. The message he was reading was this. As a sheep led to slaughter, and quiet as a lamb being sheared, he was silent, saying nothing. He was mocked and put down, never got a fair trial. But who can count his kin since he's been taken away from the earth? The eunuch said, tell me. Who is the prophet talking about, himself or some other? Philip grabbed his chance. Taking this passage as his text, he preached Jesus to him. As they continued down the road, they came to a stream of water. The eunuch said, here's water. Why can't I be baptized? He ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down in the water, to the water, and Philip baptized him on the spot. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of God suddenly took Philip off, and that was the last the eunuch saw of him. But he didn't mind. He had what he'd come for and went on down the road as happy as he could be. So Philip was obedient. He went down to this road that was leading out to the desert. And I don't know if he kind of, I guess he was just, he'd just been doing so many miracles and been led by the Holy Spirit that it was just, it was just natural to him. He said, oh, well, I'll go out to that road, desert, desolate road, out to the desert. Okay. Um, and the Holy Spirit then said to him, um, 
go up onto the chariot. Now, he didn't just jump onto someone's chariot. He waited to be asked, (laughs) which I think is quite an important part because this chariot was no ordinary chariot. It was pretty flash. And the guy, when you see pictures, Rembrandt actually painted this, um, if you arty people. Um, He was, like, decked out. He was a very important man. And so were his servants. Um, and someone reading a scroll in those days uh, had to be quite uh, high up and had to be very wealthy because there weren't many of them. And to boot, he was reading how many people read in those days. So there were a few sort of um, things that told Philip, hey, you know, hold back, wait till you're asked. So he listens, and apparently in the day, according to my research, people did read out loud a lot, and so the carriage, uh, the chariot would have been going along at a good pace for him to be able to read. And of course he was reading Isaiah, and that whole um, passage is talking about Jesus. And it, it talks about his life on earth and how he was despised and rejected. And so he's, he's saying to him, now you've been up to Jerusalem, you're, you're a Jew, you know the Old Testament, you know it, this is who, who came and who was in Jerusalem, this is the man, he's the one they're talking about, and um, you need to know about him, yes you believe in God, but Jesus was the son of that God. There is one God, three parts, one, our God, three in one. And the guy listened and listened, and he obviously thought, yeah, I can see, and his eyes were opened. And then he said, look, it's not just enough to go up to a festival. It's not enough just to give your offerings. It's not enough to serve the Queen of Candace. Our standard for God is pure, from, that God requires is purity. And there's no way that any of us can ever be pure. You have to get, there has to be a way. God's made this way for us to be able to relate to God. He's, he's made a path, and that path is Jesus who can forgive you, and you can take on his righteousness. And this guy saying, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then, but that's not enough either. You need to be baptized. And then you can really get on for God. You can just have the mind of Christ. And so he's traveling along. He says, oh, look, there's some water. Let's go for it. Um, and so they did. Just there, there they are. They just um, did it right there on the side of the road. There wasn't any classes or anything else. It was just, yep, I want to do it. Away we go. And um, as soon as um, I, I saw a couple of YouTube videos um, on this, and it's really quite cool the way that he says, he's gone. Um, so he comes up out of the water, and then um, Philip's whisked away. And the Ethiopian um, goes uh, down the road as joyful as can be, happy as, um, and goes on home. So, cool. How does that apply to us? Well, let me tell you about someone from my working life. I'll call her Emma. Emma um, was uh, married to a Kiwi. They'd come to settle in New Zealand. She, um, her husband had a new job in Wellington, and they settled to live in the hut. Emma had been a science lecturer in her home country, and she was happily pregnant, expecting their first baby. But 
and it was a big but. She delivered really early, 15 weeks early. So instead of producing a gorgeous little baby, she kind of produced a little skinned rabbit that was on the brink of life and death with tubes. She was in the intensive care unit and um, she worried um, whether this child was actually going to live or die and then if it did live as the days went on, whether it was going to have brain damage or cerebral palsy, whether it would learn. What kind of life was this child going to have? And, of course, her husband just started a new job. And so he was torn as well, going backwards and forwards um, to the neonatal intensive care unit in Wellington. I um, don't know if any of you have been in that environment. It's really high tech, really intimidating. And um, Emma didn't really feel like it was her baby because a lot of the, lot of the um, nurses kind of knew to pick up her cues better than she did. Um, so um, I met Emma and her baby at newborn age when they were discharged from hospital. Um, as I said before, I'm an occupational therapist and my job is mother crafts, is teaching mother craft skills, monitoring the baby um, and coaching Emma. So as you can imagine, this, pe- this pair were highly stressed. So um, some of my tools, I, I taught her infant massage and we looked at how to regulate the baby, how to read her cues and sleep was a terrible problem. She'd be up six times a night. This poor Emma looked like a walking zombie. Sometimes she'd open the door and she'd burst into tears and, you know, it was, it was really, really hard yakka. Um, but I would test the baby um, periodically and um, when the child was two I gave it the Bailey's test of infant and child development that tests their thinking skills and other skills and this child was really bright so it was a really really cool story she was still quite a busy little girl so um, that was kind of interesting but yeah she, she was doing really well Roll on three years, and on a Saturday night, so it's a bit sad, isn't it? You go to a work meeting on a Saturday night, but there I was at an infant massage regional meeting, and who should be there but Emma? And so we we smiled at each other and listened to the presentation. And then I got chatting to her afterwards, and I said, oh, how are you doing, and how's the baby, the child? And um, she said, oh, she's really good. She started school. She said, do you know what? Meeting people like you changed my life. I went to infant massage, I learned how to do it. I went to Pamari, was taught in the girls and teaching the girls in the Marai about infant massage and how to connect with their babies. But more than that, when I, it was time for me to go back to work, I thought, oh, I don't want to be a science lecturer. I want to do something really useful and give back to the community. So she became a community worker and used her science background. So where they would have these talks for babies and children and 10 people would turn up, she would have 100 and she'd have to repeat it the next day. She'd have things like 3D printers and were introducing the mums into what the latest technology was. And she is really thriving, really happy. And so I'd like to suggest that Emma invited me up into her chariot and I gave her what I had. She, in turn went on and gave back and changed um, her life. Now I'll introduce you to Nikki. That's not her real name. Nikki is quite the character. She's a bit outrageous. 
and she has a potty mouth. She's in her early 40s, and she's desperate to find a husband. I uh, first connected with her over Tinder, a dating site. She would show me the profiles, and she'd say, Oh, Jeanette, Jeanette, what do you think of this one? Flick, flick, flick. Look at the profile. Do you think we're a match? So this was how our, um, our relationship kind of started. And then she'd show, choose the ones, organise the dates, and then on the Monday, she, uh, she'd give me the rundown of how it all went, and she didn't scrimp on the details. I said, and sometimes I'd say, oh, Nikki, I'm a married woman. I've only known one man. <laughs> and we just joked about it. Anyway, this one Monday... Mike. Mike was the one. She said, oh, Jeanette, I am just beep, 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 scared. I'm going to muck up this relationship. Can you help me? I think Mike's the one. We've got so many commonality, uh, common interests. So I said, oh, Nikki, what you need is this book. I've just been reading it. It goes through how to understand how men think. <laughs> it's a Christian book. I said, you know, because she knows I'm a Christian. It's a Christian book. And um, so uh, she read it, and she said, oh, man, that's really helped me. I didn't know that men um, learn how to love by being respected. And, and she said, I'm really practicing how to respect Mike. I said, oh, that's good, that's good. So I'd encourage her. Um, and uh, then she has two other friends in their 30s, a bit younger. Uh, and she said, oh, Fiona's got to have this book, so she, is it okay if I give it to Fiona? And then the next person, is it okay if I give it to Tracy? Sure. And I said, oh, you should get Dan to read it. So um, <laughs> they're in the Coromandel um, one of their weekends, and, um, and she texts me, she says, oh, Dan and I are in bed reading the book. Oh, okay, <laughs> good. <laughs> um, and then there's a book for blokes about how to understand women. So um, Dan wanted, well, Nikki wanted Dan to have this. Anyway, he's read that book. Six months later, they're still dating. So Nikki, uh, actually, she's really changed. It's not just because she's happy. She, she says, you know, watching it, I actually feel normal. She said, I've learned so much about myself and about blokes and how I've mucked things up in, in the past. So I'd like to suggest that Nikki invited me up into her chariot to gain insight into relationships with men. So my last person is a Maori chief called Ruatara from, from Napohi. His testimony comes from the Hope Project. He lived in the Bay of Islands. He'd had contact with Europeans, whalers and traders, but he didn't think much of them. But he actually wanted what they had. He wanted their know-how. He wanted their animal husbandry. He wanted their tools. So he'd had a bit of toing and froing back across the Tasman, and he um, decided that he was going to visit King George III, and he was going to have an audience and um, set up some trading stuff. He was obviously very entrepreneurial and very smart guy. Um, so he thought, right, okay, I've got no money, but I will work on a ship um, and work my passage over to England, and bingo, um, we'll be good to go. But um, he got really maltreated. He was um, whipped and didn't have enough to eat, and um, he was in really quite a bad way by the time he got to London, and um, they wouldn't let him off the ship. 
And, and, but worse than that, they didn't pay him either. And then they chucked him on a convict ship back to um, Australia. And so, so enters Samuel Marsden. Samuel Marsden was on the ship Anne as well. And um, he was very interested in Maori. He recognised that he was a Maori chief. And um, he was just had such pity on the guy. And he was down um, vomiting up blood. And um, so Samuel Marsden kind of fixed him up, tried to get him some food, helped him along, got him to, to Sydney. And he said, oh, mate, do you want to come and live with me for um, a few months and get better? You can, you can come and um, there's a few missionary uh, folk. We all live together in the community out at Parramatta. We'd love to have you. And, you know, when you get better, you can, you know, I can show you the wheat and the seeds and all that stuff. And he says, oh, yeah, that would be good. That would be good. So he did. He spent all this time with Samuel Marsden and the other missionary folk. And this is a quote. He had seen in Marsden a breed of men and women unlike most others and was deeply impacted by their lives. So he became a Christian. And he, it, it was a five-year period and toing and froing. And he said, look, um, I want you to come to New Zealand and bring your tools, bring, bring your stuff, bring your seeds, bring some animals, but bring your faith. My people, I, I just see that my people need the progress um, from you and they need this information. Can you come? And so, of course, we know the rest of the story um, that on um, uh, December 1814, um, the first church service was had in the Bay of Islands and Samuel Marsden and three families came over. Um, they uh, put, wrote Maori, learnt Maori, were totally bilingual and um, got printing presses organised. They had the Gospel of Luke and the uh, Anglican prayer book. Um, and um, interestingly, that as the um, missionaries kind of got their act together and sort of started making progress, they thought, oh, look, we'll better go to the South Island. And when they got there, they found groups of Maori living in community, living in Christian community, um, studying around the word, living the life out and using the Anglican prayer book. And they thought, wow, they've evangelized themselves. And as I've said before, at one time, 50% of the Maori population were Christian in New Zealand. So I'd like you to, to like to suggest that Ruatara invited Samuel Marsden into his chariot. And what he had to give was knowledge and compassion in the first instance, and look what it produced. So now I'd like to come back to our Ethiopian eunuch because that is such a cool story. I've done quite a lot of historical research because um, a couple of months ago I was reading that Acts passage and I thought, who was that bloke? You know, you don't hear about him in any other spot. You know, who was he? Well, he, his name was Simeon. It's sort of recorded variously in different things you read. It's Simeon Bacchus or Simeon the Black or just the Ethiopian Jew. So that Ethiopian guy went back and converted Ethiopia to Christianity. In some places it says it was one of the first countries to be um, declared a Christian country. In other sources it said it was the first. 
So the early church, wow, it was a black church. It was a black church. was the first country, Africa. Go Africa. Um, and just in other reading, you know, the first university in about 300 AD was in Alexandria, Egypt. Augustine, who, you know, was just a really famous guy in Christian circles, was a, a modern-day Algerian. Um, what a great legacy um, the Af- Africa has given to us. So, coming back to my pavlova making, I'd got something wrong about my ideas about being a wife. Have you got something wrong about living in purpose? What, it, what would it look like? In each of the cases I've told you about, that someone gave what they had and God added the increase. The person gave out of what was naturally them. And so I'd just like to suggest again that your people are closer than you think. And who's at hand in your life? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just so want to stay on the right track. We don't want to be religious, Lord. We really, really don't. Lord, we want to live and give away this wonderful life, this wonderful knowledge, this wholeness and this freedom that you have gifted us. Lord, it amazes me that we can have your mind that you say, if you ask, you can think like me. And Lord, I just ask that you would show each and every one of us here today who are our people, and therefore our purpose is to give to them what is naturally what we would give to them, our own selves, our own experience, our own knowledge. And I pray that you'd keep this little seed, Lord, and that we would act on it in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.